Hello and welcome back to Legacy of Rape Culture. It's season two, baby. Okay, I can't promise I'll never do that again, but hopefully I won't. Like I said, this is season two. On the day that this is being released, I am releasing three episodes and I thought that a little homage to myself because the 25th of January is my birthday. I am gonna do 27 examples of rape culture I tried recording this as one episode and I'm gonna be honest. One, I was talking super fast and two, it was still like an hour and a half. And I also didn't like the recording so I deleted it. Why do I do this to myself? I don't know. But here we go, we're gonna do three parts to this, nine examples in each one. And I hope this gives a little bit better example or better picture of what rape culture is and also is there anything we can do about these individual aspects of rape culture that promote it? Number one, I like to call this Women's Protection 101. I think this is a very common idea that, or common notion, common thing that people know because it's still in high schools. I see it all over social media as these posters of tips and tricks of how to keep women safe and they're usually rooted in very misogynistic ideologies like well women don't wear certain things and kind of goes into the victim blaming and stuff like that so like as a society we put the responsibility for safety on women we teach them things like do not go down a dark pathway, lock your car when you get in, take self-defense class, stay in pairs when you go out, don't live on the first floor of an apartment building, don't go on walks at night, etc, etc, etc. Then we blame women for being a victim slash survivor instead of teaching men not to be the perpetrator and act violently. The problem with this is it's perpetrating this idea that violence against women is preventable only by them. Wouldn't it make more sense to try to diffuse the violence at the root? It's just flabbergasting at this point that this is still such a very strong sentiment, especially in high schools. Do I think these safety precautions are necessarily bad? No. I lock my car as soon as I get in it. I took self-defense in college. I don't walk down dark pathways unless I absolutely have to and I will definitely be on the phone or at least have 911 dialed and my finger on the call button. The fact of it is we're targeting all of these educational things towards one group. And then we're kind of, as a society, putting our hands up when a woman is victimized and being like, well, we gave you so many things to protect yourself. Why didn't you listen? Like, that sounds silly. And I think part of it is because our society is very obviously men-driven. And when we say that, or if we even propose that we're going to start doing education, a lot of men say, well, it's not all men. And my response to that is, you are correct. But here's the thing. When I'm walking down the street when it's dark out and I am by myself and I see a gentleman, he looks completely normal, just your average Joe. But those are the people that are scary. 
You don't know what he's capable of. You don't know anything about him. And even if you do know him, a lot of violence is perpetrated by people you know. Acquaintance rape is the most common type of rape. So the fact of the matter is, yeah, you're right. Not all men do perpetrate this violent acts towards women. But in a lineup, I couldn't tell you who would or did because that's the that's the matter is we don't know what men are capable of. A lot of things have stinted the emotional growth of men that also needs to be addressed. And so the fact of the matter is, one, we're trying to prepare for a war on our bodies that we can never see coming and we can never adequately be prepared for. That's what's wrong with this. Should we teach women how to protect themselves 100%? But we also need to teach men not to act violently. Honestly, this isn't, this teaching shouldn't just be like, oh, if a man acts violently, that is who we're targeting. No, every guy should have this training and have this this mindset of it because then they can call their friends out. Herd immunity. I know that's about vaccines, but that's what we need. We need education so that men can keep each other accountable, keep each other in line when they say things that can escalate to violence. That was very rambly, but I hope that makes sense. Number two, this one's kind of funny because, so I started recording this last night, but then I was too tired. <laughs> Life of me. But I, I randomly do Google searches and I just literally type in rape culture, which a lot of the times just rape comes up. And I should write this show down because now I can't remember. It's like Bridgington, Bridgerton, the new show on, I don't even know what it is on. I've clearly never watched it, but apparently there's a scene that beautifully describes this and it's kind of funny because I've only seen this example in real live cases so it's interesting to see it moving into Hollywood it probably has always been there I've just maybe not on my radar I'll shut up and actually get to what I'm trying to say so when media substitutes sex for rape it is not uncommon to see news outlets and apparently pop culture outlets as well to replace rape with sex they do this to make it more palatable to the readers they are more worried about their readers feelings rather than telling the truth the problem with this is it equates rape with sex when they are not synonyms of each other we need to challenge this notion set forth by media because it is so damaging so the example that i saw was like I said, there was apparently a rape scene in the show. I don't know. I've never watched it. But the article said something, 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 controversial sex scene. And when I read the article, let's be honest, I skimmed it. It described and even said, I'm pretty sure, rape. So the fact of the matter that now you're you're not even equating sex with rape. You're, you're saying it's a controversial rape. Or sorry, controversial sex. No, that's not okay. To be clear... Rape and sex have nothing to do with each other. And people might be like, Tia, what are you talking about? Rape is for power. 
studies have shown it over and over again, it's not necessarily about the act itself. Rape is not consensual. Rape is one person doing on to another person that they don't want to have done. Sex is between two consensual or more, is between consensual adults, and it's for pleasure. It brings up this this narrative of like, oh yeah, no, we had sex. Well, did she say yes? Well, no, but she wanted it. Because we had sex. It was sex. We did the act of sex, so it had to be sex. No, that we have to kind of put a barrier or push these two words and these definitions away from each other because because these these words have been so interchangeable that it's, some people don't even bat an eye. That's the problem. We have the opportunity to call out media sources and question them on why they are using this terminology and exchanging words even if it's just like an email a tweet to get eyes on it we have the chance to try to be like hey this is not okay this is why we need to stop doing this because it is damaging to victims slash survivors because it's another way to devalue what they're saying number three so number three i almost don't like talking about it because I've gotten in hot water when talking about this because I think it's so well known and so many people have used this and it's kind of this idea that no one wants to be seen as a bad guy and I'm kind of saying like if you use this term you're a bad guy or at least that's what they're hearing that's not exactly what I'm saying so using the phrase friend zoned full disclaimer I've used this term I've heard my friends use this term, and I haven't bat an eye. Like, being a millennial, I am no stranger to the phrasing, like, they friend-zone me, I've been friend-zoned, etc., etc. This phrasing is problematic for multiple reasons. One, this ideology that when people become friends with the gender they fancy, there is this underlining obligation of something more. Two, This phrasing is commonly used in heterosexual relationships, which plays into the idea that men and women cannot be friends because of this undeniable sexual tension between the genders. Three, belittles the value of their friendship. Four, the rejection from a romantic gesture does not equal friendship. Five, it plays into this quote-unquote nice guy syndrome where the friendly acts are motivated by an external want. This phrasing is rooted in toxicity and should not be used and question when others use it. So I like to use myself as an example because I think, at least in my head, when I say it out loud, it does sound very, very silly. So hopefully if you're still like on the fence of what I'm saying about this, this will help. So I am a queer woman. I don't really care the gender of the human. I care about the personality. So in that instance, if this was an accurate and not rooted in toxicity, there would be this like quote-unquote obligation with literally anyone that I meet and anyone that I get in a friendship with. And friendship and relationships are slightly different. And I'm not saying that relationships can't come out of friendships. But when there's this underlining obligation, because that's what this is, I don't want to play on stereotypes, 
but or the majority of the time when I hear this, it's a man saying it about a woman. And this obligation that when a man is nice to a woman, require or expect something in return, that being a sexual favor or sexual something or just a romantic relationship, and that is not true. If you are getting into a friendship in the hopes that one day they will see you differently or something, like that, that's not necessarily the healthiest way to go about it. I think, if we're being completely honest, I think honesty is the key. If you fancy someone and you're starting a friendship, you probably should just be front with them and be like, hey, I kind of have feelings for you. I still really want to be your friend, whatever. You shouldn't just expect them to be like, oh, well, I like you, so now we're going to be a thing. That's not okay. Both parties get a choice. <laughs> Said in a, like a joking matter, but the notion behind it is not so joking. Like when people say like they friends on me, there's this level of hurt and there's this level of sometimes anger and like these emotions that are damaging to the value of friendship, the value of different genders, friendships. Like I hate this idea that promotes the idea that men and women can't be friends. That is not true at all. And it's very sad that this is furthering that notion in our society. Number three, when media and the general population cares more about the perpetrator's athletic career. This one, I'm going to try not to get a little angry. There's a lot of these that kind of make me very angry. So I'm going to try to, we might take some deep breaths through this. <laughs> so the best example of this was during the Chanel Miller case when media outlets were more interested in posting her rapist swimming stats and how he was on the Olympic path. It almost seemed like they were trying to justify his actions because he was a decent athlete. One, sorry to break it to you, but someone's worth is not associated with their athletic ability. And two, it is not an exception for an, an unforgivable act. We have to stop allowing this journalistic framing. As a collective, we can challenge this when we see news outlets using this. And like I said, the best example was Chanel Miller, but it's not the only example. In the Chanel Miller case, I'm pretty sure most of the outlets that I saw, like news outlets that I saw talking about this story they used his swimming picture rather than his mugshot. And bringing it a little closer to home, there was a case in my undergrad college that got kicked out of my school. He was a basketball player and then started playing at a different school. There was a case that I heard that a football player did the same thing where he got kicked out of school. The school said that they have no tolerance for this behavior, but then he was picked up at another D1 school and was still playing this season after. So he didn't even necessarily skip a season or anything like that. It happens here. I think the, the documentary It Happens Here talks about a well-known football player and cops can't go on the field when they're practicing and the coaches... And it almost seemed like the administration was protecting 
him because he was this really good athlete and then he went on to the NFL. And everyone was taking his side and saying like, well, obviously this isn't true or like she deserved it or all this stuff because he was an athlete. Why do we put these athletes on pedestals? I don't care that you could swim a lap and under, I don't even know anything about swimming, so I'm not even going to pretend. It does not dismiss or to be frank, has anything to do with the act that is being spoken upon in the article and in these things. This is a journalistic article. You're supposed to be talking about the facts and Kim being an athlete does not say anything about his character. But in our society, apparently it does. Number two, media, like when media substitutes, we have the opportunity to push back and be like, hey, this is not okay. Hey, this is not okay. Hey, this is not okay. And this is why. Number five, predators, their friends, and society at large chalking it up to just regretful sex after it happens. To be clear, this is used as a defense tactic to devalue the victim slash survivor's claims of rape. This is yet another way to question the victim slash survivor's character and trustability. This rhetoric is also very damaging because it scares other victim slash survivors from coming forward. According to Rain, an estimated 23% of sexual assaults are reported. It's tactics like this that question how truthful the victim slash survivor is and deters them from seeking justice. If you hear a friend use this language, question them. Educate them on how bad this language is. Start the conversation. And not only question other people, if you use this terminology or this ideology, question yourself. Like, why is this some sort of... Oh, what is it called? There's this aspect of victim blaming that the reason why victim blaming is such a big thing is because it's like a survival tactic is this like a survival tactic that because I think I hear this most when a friend comes forward and is like hey I think I was rape and the first thing is their friend says to them is are you sure it was just not regretful sex are they trying to preserve themselves and they're just like oh my friend got raped no she she no that can't happen rape doesn't happen to us so it must be regretful sex it must be just whatever and this idea that crying rape is such a fad and everyone wants to do it so clearly and like the inflated false reporting is so high which we will talk about later i i just i genuinely don't understand this notion of this like regretful sex because it is not regretful sex like we said in the beginning sex and rape have nothing to do with each other another way that we are mixing these words together so that it makes for a messier gray area when there really shouldn't be gray area. Number six. Okay, now this one. Oh, girl. This... (laughs) So a little backstory on this one before we get into it. I heard about this when I was in high school, I think. Yeah, it was in 2012. And I didn't realize that this was coming from a U.S. representative. 
oh, this just boils my blood. And it boils my blood because people actually think this, not just him. And he was also promoting the sentiment. Okay, I'll shut up. We'll talk about it. Shh, Tia, just read it. Number six, a lawmaker questioning the legal stance of what he calls a quote-unquote a legitimate rape. In 2012, a U.S. representative from Missouri commented about rape in the context of not having an abortion exception for rape victims slash survivors that result in pregnancy. He said, and I quote, if it's a legitimate rape, the female body has ways to shut the whole thing down. Okay. Now, if you heard that, maybe it induced some anger, rage inside you like it does for me. So I think we need to take a deep breath before we go on. Okay. There are several issues with this statement. One, he is implying that women who are raped and pregnancy is resulted from that, that it is not in fact a rape. Secondly, his claim is not rooted in scientific evidence, just a personal belief. I genuinely want to know where he got this from because I, I just, I just can't fathom. Like, women's bodies are amazing. Can we just talk about that for a second and t put credit where credit is due? Why? What? Why? Hmm? <laughs> I am just so flabbergasted and so in disbelief that a man stood in front of other U.S. representatives it was just like, sorry, dudes. It's not right because clearly women's body have a way of shutting it down. Excuse me? Excuse me. No. No. Which he then promoted to thousands leading to others believing this. And then he goes on to say that, and I quote, a woman calls a police station. The police investigates. She says, I've been raped. They investigate that. So before any of the facts are in, they call it a legitimate case of rape. This just goes back to placing doubt and assuming a lie by the victim survivor. Sexual assault and rape are one of the only crimes that are doubted and questioned from the start. We need to stop allowing this, we need to examine this, and we need to challenge this mindset, which start from us. This belief system came from somewhere. I could not find where. I tried to look because I'm the type of person that needs to find out the why. Like, why does this person think this? Was some quackadoodle doctor like, yeah, this is, this is not true. Women that... Um, get pregnant after they say that they were raped is not true because the woman's body has a lever that just like pops open um, when the chemicals in their brain goes off when they know that they're in um, danger so yep it's just like a metal thing that just goes chink and nothing can get through so clearly this is not like is that what people think that the woman's body do like where did this come from and if you think this way, I'm sorry, I'm being very harsh and probably not um, making a very safe space to learn, and I apologize for that, but please question this belief system because, like I said, it is not rooted in scientific evidence. 
it is, I'm assuming, probably rooted in religious beliefs. I have nothing to back that up on, but when I did research on this representative from Missouri, he takes a lot of his belief systems from the church. So I don't know what church, but a church. So maybe that's, maybe the teachings were some, some sort of religious belief system, but I'm here to tell you that the, that is not true. And you're not only devaluing um, victims slash survivors as a whole, but you're completely decrediting and calling liars to anyone that is raped and there's a pregnancy as a result. That's not okay. I know people that the rape resulted in pregnancy and... It breaks my heart to know that people believe this and say this. And when we talk about re-victimization, it's stuff like this that we're talking about. Could you imagine saying like, yeah, I was sexually assaulted, I was raped, and I ended up pregnant with it. And someone being like, oh yeah, then no, it wasn't rape. There's no way that it could have been rape. That's damaging. Why did I get, like, all of a sudden really sad? Maybe because I pictured the people I know. Okay, y'all, if you do not appreciate this next one, I had to do math. And if you know me personally, math is hard. <laughs> and this took me way longer than, whew, way longer than it should. Number seven, inflating false rape claims to decredit the victim slash survivor. This one literally boggles my mind. And like I said before, I always wonder, like, the why, like, why did this idea become such a big powerhouse? Because a lot of people use this. I wonder where this idea that most sexual assaults and rapes are false. In the reality, only 2% to 10% are false reported, according to the National Sexual Violence Resource Center. Now let's do some math. Like I said, this was not easy for me. The U.S. Department of Justice Criminal Victimization Report of 2019 shows roughly 459,310 rape-slash-sexual assaults in 2019. This means, based on the statistics, the false reporting for 2019 would be 9,186.2 to 45,931 cases reported. Now, the numbers didn't say if they were... Because I'm assuming if it comes to, like, a false report, it would not be shown in statistics. I genuinely don't know what their criteria is or what their pool is or anything like this. But the statistics on this is not even that accurate. There have been evidence that supports that some victims slash survivors retract their rape or sexual assault accusations based on how they were treated through the process and the intimidation tactics from the accused. The bottom line is the number of people that false report is smaller than most think. It might even be smaller than what the statistic shows based on several external factors. We as a society need to shut this rhetoric down. Like I said in before, 20, what was it? 23% of sexual assaults are reported. I did not do the math of out of the 459,360 310 jesus numbers like i didn't add 
the what 77% to that. 2 to 10% is a big gap. I don't know if the people that retract their statement, if that is categorized as false reporting. Like, I don't know exactly how the statistics are laid out on that aspect. Bros, no woman or man or non-binary person wants to go through our society saying that they were raped when they were not. Do you know how victims slash survivors are treated? Do you know all that? And we're still saying that most of the sexual assault and rape claims are false. Pardon me? One person probably said this and was just like, well, we're going to try to decredit. It's probably a lawyer. Let's be honest here. It was probably a legal stance of like tactic, a legal tactic of we need to decredit them. So we're going to say that, well, like, obviously, you know that most of the claims are false. So in my case is not guilty because of this. And, and then it snowballed into what we see now. And it's just this common notion between so many people. And it's like, yeah, no, it was probably false because the false, false rape claims are so high. Nope. Nope, they are not. Number eight. The accused claim that a yes was given prior to the engagement, so it was consensual. I am a big person on like visuals, and there was one thing that I loved during my, when I was doing like a peer training and all this stuff, was the acronym FRIES. And it's about consent, and so I'm going to read it to you. Um, so it's FRIES, freely given reversible, informed, enthusiastic, and specific. You see this a lot with intimate partner relationships when, like, say, a week ago, five seconds ago, whatever it may be, a yes was given, and they're like, well, she said yes, or he said yes a week ago, so obviously it's okay. No, that's not how consent works. Consent is not hard to understand. Consent has to be given every time a sexual interaction happens. No, a yes from a consensual sexual interaction from a week ago or even the night before, hours before, minutes earlier. Yes, either partner has the right to change their yes to a no does not mean it applies to a new sexual interaction. This idea that just because it was given before means that it applies to all future sexual engagements. Do not assume it is a yes. Even if you have gotten a yes before, listen, communicate, never assume. Consent is not sexy. It is, in fact, mandatory. The best conversation I've probably ever had about consent was on season one, the BDSM episode. If you want to know more about communication and all that stuff and consent, go listen to that episode because I think Matthew did a beautiful job in explaining it in a way that I probably will never be able to adequately explain it. So please go to him. But 
I wonder where this idea came from, especially intimate relationships. In some cultures, it is rape is not an option. It can't happen because the idea that when you get in a relationship, that is consent to always have sex when your partner wants it. That is not true. You always have the right to say no. You always have the choice. There is never an obligation. There is never a yes that overholds all sexual interactions. Sex has to be given freely. Sex has to be given specific things. Like if you say yes to sex, that does not mean yes to oral. Communicate people. It'll make your sex lives better. It'll strengthen your relationship. And when you communicate, remember this very, very important aspect of communicating, and that's listening. Listening to what your partner wants. Listening to what you want. If you don't want to have sex, but it's your boyfriend or your girlfriend, you don't have to. There is no obligation And if they are pressuring you or if they're making you feel guilty or any of the coercion, manipulation, any of that, that's not consent. Sorry to break it to you, but that's not, that's not how consent works. Number nine. When media refers to children trafficking victims slash survivors as child prostitutes. So I've gone over this concept multiple times in my first nine well, first eight, because I haven't technically talked about this one, Um, but I'm going to just hit it home. Language is so crucial, and media outlets know this. When most people hear the word prostitute, there is an element of consent. Most women who are sex workers consent to that work. When media outlets use the same language when describing child traffickers, readers usually make the same assumptions that they consented to it. This is where the danger lies. We live in a very, very judgmental and cold society. Might not care about the child if they are under the impression they had a choice. We do not have to stand for this type of language. Question why it is being used and question the people using it, aka the media. (laughs) So apparently my first nine, I'm just just saying, question what you're reading, especially when it comes to media outlets. It's not great. And if you want to know a little bit more about like sex trafficking, and I mean, we don't get into it a lot in the episode called Sex Work on season one. It's It's just the same as the sex and rape thing. Child trafficking and child prostitution, they're not the same thing at all. This is just another example of one, making it more palatable for readers because when you hear of trafficking, it's this really bad thing, which it is. So changing it a little bit and being like, well, it's, it's a child prostitute. No, <laughs> that's not how that works. It's just little things like that, like little changes that... As a society, I don't think really comes on our radar because it's so normalized. There's this normality of making it more palatable, but still telling the story, but also it's promoting toxicity 
for not only sex workers, but the children involved in the child trafficking and victims slash survivors. So like I've said probably like 30 times in this first episode, we have the power and honestly we should be questioning the media. We should be questioning ourselves and we should be questioning other people that use this terminology. Y'all, that is the end of episode one. I want to make some disclaimers. So I don't know if I've ever said why I say victim slash survivor. I don't have the right to put terminology on other people. Some victim slash survivors like to be called victims. Some victim slash survivors do not like to be called victims. Some victim slash survivors like to be called survivors. Some victim slash survivors do not like to be called survivors. So I use both terms to be inclusive because I do not want to put the terminology on said person. If we are looking at it through the crime lens, like the legal lens, it would just be victim. But I am not looking at it through the legal lens. So I use both. So I hope that makes sense if anyone's wondering why I say that the way I do. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. Part two is up right after this one and then part three right after that one. I don't think anyone will listen to it back to back because that's a lot of listening to my voice. If you do, bless your soul. I am so excited for season two. Y'all don't even understand. I've recorded three episodes so far. We have professors We have people that are experts in their field that have done research on this. We go international and talk to someone in Australia. And I am just so, so excited for y'all to hear these episodes because I've had a blast recording them. I've learned so much. I hope you learn so much. And more importantly, I hope you unlearn. All the links that are relevant will be in the bio and have a great day.